0: Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I am your host, Kevin. I want to wish a happy 4th of July weekend to all of our listeners living in the United States. And no matter where you're at, whether you listen in the U.S. or abroad, I hope that you are safe and healthy as we continue to work our way through the coronavirus pandemic. Well, today we are going to dive into a book that I have been very excited to cover for a long time. Radium is an element that appears in the 88th spot on the periodic table. It is radioactive with a half-life of 1,600 years, and the radiation it produces, as it decays, produces a low-level light through a process known as radioluminescence. Today, radium is considered one of the most hazardous of the radio elements, and it is handled only in controlled and contained environments. My guest today is Kate Moore. Kate is a book editor, actress, theater director, and best-selling author. She joins me on the podcast today from her home in the UK to discuss her book, Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. In Radium Girls... Kate dives into America's early fascination with radium and profiles the tragic lives of several 1920s women whose job painting with luminescent radium paint led to horrific medical problems and an uphill legal battle to seek justice from the factories that knowingly exposed them to hazardous materials. And before we get into today's episode, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who has given a good rating to the podcast on their podcast directories. I've noticed there have been a couple new ones this week on Apple Podcasts, and I want to give a shout out to Tamara, who listened to our last episode where we interviewed Keith Cooper on his book, The Contact Paradox, and had some wonderful things to say about that. So thank you everyone so much for your support, and if you've been listening for a while and would like to leave your thoughts on your podcast app, uh, please feel free to do so. Those ratings and reviews are incredibly helpful, getting the word out about the show. Now on to my interview with Kate Moore. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past it's not the average history that you learned in school, we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe
1: The stranger than fiction and super unique
0: Kate Moore, welcome to the podcast today
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: Um, Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with me today. Um, You are the author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. And if you would um, be kind enough to tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um, Well, as you can hear from my accent, I'm actually a British writer. I live, live in England, and that's where I grew up. And I discovered this story of these American heroines uh, through directing a play about them one of my passions is theatre as well Um, and the book came to be because I was just astonished that no one had written a book that looked at these individual women before there were books on the remarkable scientific and legal legacies that they left in the wake of their experiences but there was no book that sort of celebrated these women so even though i was a british woman and i had to travel four thousand miles across an ocean to follow in the footsteps of these remarkable people i felt passionately that i wanted to tell their story so that's how the book came to be Um, and my background as you asked about it is actually uh, in publishing so i was an editorial director for many years uh, working for penguin random house in the uk and um the book of the radium girls and the story of the radium girls happened really fortuitously in that i decided to write their book about six months after i had gone freelance and i was working as a freelance editor and ghostwriter and author and the girl's story sort of came to me and it was one of those wonderful serendipitous moments where because i was freelance i had the freedom to follow this passion of mine to tell their story and that's how the book came to be as well in terms of my sort of professional background
0: now how did you go about researching these women because the the strength of this book is that it's a very intimate portrayal of of what these women went through
1: absolutely that that as i say for me it was always about the girls and i hope the book is a tribute to them and i hope readers when they read the radium girls feel like these women even though we're talking about a time sort of 100 years ago, the start of the First World War in the Roaring Twenties, I hope these women feel like friends because my research really tried to uncover who they were as people. So that led me obviously to try and track down their family members and I was lucky enough to be able to interview sisters and sons and daughters and nieces and nephews of these people who obviously were able to bring them to life for me. So. They could tell me about what these women's hobbies were, their passions, even sort of the sounds of their voices, what they like to cook. And I was able to use those personal intimate details to try to bring them to life. And of course, the other key element of the research um, was to try and find the voices and the records of these women. So looking up uh, court transcripts from their own court testimonies, looking up their diaries, their letters, anything and everything that gave me an insight into them and I hope if you read the book um it is non-fiction but it's written as what I call narrative non-fiction it reads like a novel with twists and turns and these women as the book's heroines and I stitched their voices throughout the narrative so that you will hear directly from Grace Fryer and Catherine Dunahue and Catherine Sharp and all the other radium girls their first person accounts are in this book Um, and I mentioned at the top of the interview that I uh, also work as a ghostwriter and in many ways I sort of feel a bit like I'm the Radium Girls ghostwriter in writing this book so I don't necessarily feel uh, sort of authoritative as a historian for example but I feel like I was able to give these women a voice through using their own words to try and bring their story to life because they were the ones that lived through it, so who better to tell us what it was like to live through it than the women themselves?
0: Absolutely. They, they come across as fully fleshed out, um, um, even though they're real people, they come out as fully fleshed out characters as like the novel.
1: Thank you. That, that was what I was aiming for, so I'm, I'm really pleased you felt that. Thank you very much.
0: Um, so the the emphasis for you is is not the science uh, behind this topic, but but we do have to uh, to address it briefly. Um, yes. So if you could, you, you know, for the benefit of the audience, what is radium? What's its uses, and and why in at the turn of the twentieth century were they calling it the wonder element?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I suppose I should I should probably just sort of recap as well as as to who the radium girls were for people that may not be aware. And so they were women um, who were working in the First World War and Roaring Twenties, and they were dial painters. They were painting watches and clocks and aeronautical instruments with glow-in-the-dark paint made from radium, because radium is luminous. Um, And they were taught by their companies to lip point, to put their paintbrushes laden with radium paint between their lips to make a fine point, and in so doing, swallowed the radium. Now, you ask me what radium is. It is a radioactive element. So what we're talking about is people being directed by their companies to swallow radioactive material. And of course, all of us today, with the knowledge that we now have, are throwing our hands up in the air and are aghast at these people swallowing radioactive substances. But actually, at the time uh, the women were working, at the turn of the 20th century, people actually thought that radium was this wonder element, this sort of cure-all of beneficial to health. Um, The Chicago Tribune described it as the greatest find in history. And it's one of those things that you kind of think, well, how on earth could that have happened? Because also at the turn of the century, they already knew that radium was dangerous. And one of the most Shocking things for me in researching the book in, in was that in the laboratories next door to the Dial painting studios where you've got women putting their paintbrushes in their mouths, the lab workers were issued with lead aprons and ivory-tipped tongs and told they couldn't touch the radium with their bare hands because already we knew that radium would give you radiation burns and so on. But the difference is that the lab workers were handling large amounts and the radium girls were handling a minuscule amount. And what had happened is that very early on in radium's life, it was discovered in 1898 uh, by the Curies. Very quickly, the fact that it could destroy human tissue and flesh was put to medicinal use. It was used to treat cancerous tumors with remarkable results. And radium is still used even today to treat some cancers, but a different isotope than the ones that the radium girls were using. And because it was saving lives and treating cancer, entrepreneurs thought, well, perhaps we can harness this incredible medicinal power. And okay, a, a, a large amount will not only destroy a cancerous tumour but destroy a lab worker. Um, but perhaps if we just use a small amount, perhaps that will be beneficial for health. And what's shocking is that they this got further down the line really because what happened was all these products sprung up around it you could go into your local drugstore and buy radioactive pills to treat things like hay fever um, you could buy radium jock straps and lingerie to boost your sex life it was marketed in chocolate as a kind of added pep you up um, people literally drank radioactive water as a kind of health tonic and the recommended dose was 5 to 7 glasses a day but when you actually look into the research behind all these products that was saying a small amount is beneficial and won't hurt you it was actually funded by the radium companies who were making money selling all these products but of course people didn't dig into it at the time they just you know took on the received wisdom of the age was which was that radium was not only safe but actually this wondrous element that everyone should want around as much as possible. You should be eating it in chocolate and, you know, necking your sort of radium tonics and so on and so forth. And so the radium girls instructed to put their paintbrushes in their mouths simply thought they were really lucky to be exposed to this wonder element and thought nothing of it until a few years later.
0: Now, we're we're doing an audio interview so you can't see me, but I'm just shaking my head right now as I imagine everybody <laughs> listening to this is. It, Absolutely, it's unbelievable.
1: Say, it, it does seem unbelievable and I know lots of people that have um, sort of midway through reading The Radium Girls have gone and sort of Googled it because they can't actually believe that it's non-fiction and <laughs> that this all happened. But it, you know, it's a few taps away. You can find adverts online for these radium tonics and radium chocolate that I'm talking about And and it was global as well. You know, the book is set in America, but this was a global phenomenon all across the world. Um, People loved radium. As I say, it was seen as this greatest find in history and people adored it and put it in everything. It was in cosmetics, believe it or not. You know, radium-laced face creams to give you a glowing complexion.
0: Um, At one point, I recall reading that they mixed it with uh, play sand to put in children's playgrounds even.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, um, the, the waste created from extracting radium from its ore creates this um, sort of thing that looks like seaside sand. So the radium companies, entrepreneurs that they were, thought, well, you know, how can we use this? We can sell it to children's schools and playgrounds. And that's exactly what they did. And this radioactive sand ended up in children's playgrounds, also ended up um, being used as landfill. Um, so there are several sites across America and in other countries as well where that radioactive landfill has been used, and decades down the line, that was obviously a, a massive problem and something that needed cleaning up. Um, but it took decades before that actually happened.
0: Wow, there's a, it's very difficult to come up with some something to say after that. Um, well, you mentioned that the women are you know considered themselves lucky to be working in this field so so what mm. did a shift at at the radium factory look like for these girls and, and and we're specifically talking about a location in Illinois
1: that's right well I write about two locations in the book so um, Ottawa Illinois and also Orange in New Jersey and um, dial painting happened all across America but for the purposes of the book I chose to focus on these two particular towns and as I say the women thought they were lucky to get these jobs but actually working with radium was not the only benefit although that was obviously a big one given its perceived beneficial effects and also given its glamour not only was it a new and trendy substance but it was glow in the dark and Catherine Dunahue who is one of the key radium girls I write about who worked in Illinois She said that she and her friends used to wear their good dresses to the plant because the women would get covered in this sort of luminous dust because they used to mix their own paint, which created this radium dust all over them. And they would be shining and shimmering. And so they'd wear their party frocks so that when they went out to the speakeasies after work, they'd be the ones on the dance floors sort of shimmering like fireflies. And so that was a part of the appeal. But it was also a very fun place to work. Um, A lot of the women, and this for me was one of the tragedies, they encouraged their sisters, their friends, their cousins to join them at the studio. And so you often ended up with whole sets of siblings painting away alongside each other. But of course the fact the women all knew each other made it really fun. It was very sociable. There was a lot of bonhomie. Um, I found photographs in the archives of the girls having sort of, you know, company picnics. Um, there was a in the place in New Jersey, there was a little brook that ran behind the studio and I found snap, snapshots of the girls sort of sitting on this makeshift wooden bridge across the brook, swinging their legs and eating ice cream cones. And it had that sort of fun element to it. Um, and the other thing to mention is that it was extremely well paid. So the radium girls were in the top 5% of female wage earners nationally, and at a time before women even had the vote, these girls were earning more than three times the average factory floor worker, which actually meant that sometimes they were taking home more than their husbands and their fathers. Um, and just to mention again on the sort of fun element, the other thing to mention about the demographics of who the radium girls were is that they tended to be extremely young women. Most of them, uh, when my book opens, are teenagers. And, um, you know, the very first chapter focuses on Catherine Sharp in New Jersey, who is just 14 years old. But actually records show that some of the girls who were lip pointing and painting these dials were actually as young as 11 which is really shocking to think about what happened to them. But as you said, when the story opens, actually the women are full of life and full of good heart and humour, and are just simply thrilled to get this well-paid, glamorous, and um, artistic job as well. And um, just to mention as a final point, I was really stunned when I was researching in Ottawa and looked up Catherine Dunahue and her friends in the town directories. And next to their names, it gave the profession of people. So, you know, there'd be labourer or, uh, you know, policeman or whatever it was that the people did. And next to Catherine's name, it didn't say she was a dial painter, which was generally the name of the profession. It said artist, Radium Dial Company. And I think that artistic nature of the job was also a huge appeal for many of these women.
0: Their story kind of dovetails really well with with what's going on for women in, in the roaring 20s and the jazz age. You know, they're, they're getting yes. outside the home, they're getting profession, they, they're enjoying a nightlife, they're enjoying a single life.
1: Exactly, G- gaining that independence, you know, that financial independence as well. Um, absolutely, yes, it com- it completely mirrors that um, sort of female empowerment that's happening in the wider world.
0: So, so while this seemed, you know, cool and fun for the girls at the time, they pretty quickly start, to develop some health problems? What, what did they first begin to experience?
1: Well, it, become, it, it to begin with, it's very innocent sort of symptoms. Um, you know, an aching tooth, um, a sore leg or a sore arm, um, you know, things that you none of us would think is a particular problem. Um, but what happened to the radium girls is that, you know, they'd go to the dentist to say, oh, my tooth hurts, and the dentist might pull it. But then the next tooth, would start to hurt, and then the next one and the next one until the girls found that they didn't have to go to the dentist anymore because all of their teeth were simply spontaneously falling out on their own. And you know, that aching leg or that aching arm, the women found that their bones were beginning to spontaneously fracture, or sometimes their leg would begin shortening. So, some of the women found. That, you know one leg would end up about four inches shorter than the other um, and of course what was happening to them is that they were suffering from radiation poisoning internal radiation poisoning because they'd swallowed the radium when they put their paintbrushes in their mouths and once inside the women radium is what's known as a bone seeker so It seeks out women's bones and people's bones when they ingest the radium and it settles there and it's impossible to get it out. But once it's in your bones, it then emanates those radioactive rays that we know about, the alpha, the beta, the gamma. And there's absolutely no protection such as the lab workers have with those lead aprons. This radium is inside the women's bones next to their bone marrow, shooting out its powerful rays which is why they're losing their teeth, their bones are breaking, and they also suffered severe anemia, um, fatal anemia, because it was affecting their bone marrow. Um, And slowly but surely, it took a long time because radium poisoning is very insidious. We're often talking sort of four or five years before even a first symptom begins to show. But inevitably, the women all start to get sick. And some of them, particularly the younger women, start to die.
0: And this is a result of their repeated low-level exposure for several hours a day, every day.
1: Exactly. I, as as I, you know, as we said earlier, the received wisdom of the age was that a small amount of radium would be beneficial to you. What these girls proved, to the you know benefit of the world, thanks to their sacrifice, is that even a small amount of radium ingested is not a good idea it is poisonous it is dangerous it is fatal.
0: Now how long did it take their their doctors and their dentists to begin to put together that that this was an occupational related illness?
1: It took a lot longer than it should have done and one of the most shocking things to me when I was researching the book is that dozens of young women of radium girls had died and the connections were plain to see you know it's all women from the same studio and yes it's five years on so they don't they're not necessarily all dial painters anymore but the common denominator from these almost identical um diseases you know there are differences sometimes it's women's teeth sometimes it's women's arms but similar symptoms and these dozens of young women are dying and no one is putting it together Um, It was not until the first male employee of the radium firm died that the authorities even did an autopsy to try and find out what was killing these workers from these radium plants. And only at that stage did they start to think, well, it might be radium poisoning. And only once a man had been examined and diagnosed, did they start autopsying the radium girls. And at that juncture, Um, A brilliant doctor called Harrison Martland essentially solved the medical mystery of the Dial Painters' deaths and their sicknesses and their crippling illnesses that they were suffering. And he determined that radium was at fault and, you know, published to that effect. And his articles now are these sort of groundbreaking medical studies that have proven the connection, as you say, that this small amount, this cumulative effect was dangerous and was hurting these workers But the radium firms obviously didn't want that connection made public. They didn't want it to become the new received wisdom of the age. And so they fought with everything that they had to try and discredit the connection, to try and silence the women who obviously were trying to speak out. And for me, the truly extraordinary thing about these women is the way they react to this poisoning and what it's done to them and to their friends. Because they choose to fight back and to speak out against these firms, to speak up against this received medical wisdom of the age that radium is safe. And they're doing it not to help themselves because they're afflicted with what they're told is this fatal poisoning, but they're doing it to help and protect others. And I just think that altruism is just extraordinary um but that you know that's why I feel so passionate about their story I just think they are incredible people for what they did um because as I say the firms just tried everything they could to discredit the women and the medical doctors who tried to come to their aid because they were determined that nothing would get in the way of their profits and in the way of all these radium you know products that they were producing they didn't want the good old days to end even though people were dying because of the products
0: Right. You have this first uh, generation of of women who, you know, began working around World War One. But, you know, 10, 15 years on, um, you know, there's an entirely new generation of young women who are beginning the lip pointing radium trade.
1: Yes. Um, I mean, I I would say what I think is shocking and terrible about this history is when the first generation of the radium girls emerge, who are the women I write about in my book, As I say, they have this long fight for justice, a long fight for recognition, but it is eventually it becomes accepted wisdom, as we all know today, that radium is dangerous. And so when the Second World War comes around and there's a new generation of dial painters, there are actually national safety standards put in place that are based on the knowledge they've gained from the bodies of the women I'm writing about. Um, So they, you know, put in new safety mechanisms and innovative technologies to try and protect these girls and not only these girls but other people working with radioactive materials so there's a direct connection between the Manhattan Project and the Radium Girls because the lead scientist on the Manhattan Project remembered what had happened to Grace Fryer and Catherine Dunahue and was determined that his workers would not suffer the same fate. And so because of that knowledge that he had gained from the Radium Girls, he insisted on safety procedures on the Manhattan Project, which saved thousands of lives. Um, But of course, the problem is safety standards only keep you safe if the companies that you work for use them. And I know, anecdotally, from some of the more limited research I've conducted on the Second World War women, my focus is obviously on the First World War women, But I know that actually lip pointing was continued even though it was supposed to be banned, even though it was supposed to be unsafe and so I have people writing to me even today saying you know they knew of people who were lip pointing in the second world war and beyond um, which I think just goes to show how effective some of those counter campaigns can be that even when people are saying you know what this is dangerous they're whistleblowing on it some people still don't accept it and some companies still don't insist on putting those protective measures in place
0: now, as you write throughout the the book, you know, sadly, you know, many of these women succumb to radiation poisoning and and end up mm. dying. but 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 some live to to fight this battle, as you write about. Uh, mm. what was what was life like for these women um who endured radiation poisoning?
1: I mean, hor- horrible on so many levels. I mean, at the most basic level, you've got the physical suffering that they're enduring. You know, we're talking about an incredibly powerful force. You know, radium has a half life of one thousand six hundred years. You know, it's mm. powerful that powerful for all those centuries, and these women have absolutely no defence against it. It's inside them, and it's literally destroying them from the inside out. It's breaking their bones inside their bodies. Later women suffered these horrific uh, cancerous tumours called sarcomas, tumours of the bone, which were enormous. You know, there was one woman I write about in the book, Irene Laporte, um, who had a pelvic tumour, and they said um, that it ultimately grew to be larger than two footballs. You know, these are absolutely horrific growths and horrific poisoning that these women are suffering. So you've got that on the one hand. And... Which, for me, just makes their fight for justice all the more extraordinary, that they even had the energy, the dedication, the
0: you know the
1: wherewithal in some ways to sort of embark on this fight for justice. Yeah, but also, right. you know, the way that their communities reacted to them was not supportive. they were they weren't like, yeah, let's let you know, you go, girls, let's go and get them. And um, you know, the women, um, there was gossip about them. People thought they were not doing the right thing. People actually thought they were lying. You know, when you can go to your local drugstore and buy a radioactive pill and yet this woman down the road is saying that radium is hurting her, you know, it's kind of discombobulating to connect the two. And so the communities um, reacted against them. Um, You know, their church leaders told them that they should not be filing suit against these radium firms and they were shunned by their neighbours. Um, you know, particularly as the story evolves, because as I say, this was a very long fight for justice. Um, In Ottawa, Illinois, it was the time of the Great Depression uh, when some of these court cases were beginning to come through. And of course, the idea of suing one of the few firms that is left around giving people work and wages in the time of the Great Depression, you know, what these girls were doing, even though it was completely valid and right and just, was frowned upon by the whole community um so they had a, a horrible fight you know they were personally attacked um by the companies by the lawyers by their communities and um, by private detectives who were hired to dig up dirt on them you know to cast aspersions on their moral characters and so on um these girls have to face all of that and yet they still kept going um horrific as it was because as i say this this driving power that they had to hold the companies to account and ensure protection for others and um, one of my favorite quotes in the book uh, comes from Grace Fryer and she's asked um, when she's filing suit you know why are you doing it and she says it is not for myself that i care i am thinking more of the hundreds of other girls to whom this may serve as an example and i just think that is such an inspirational quote on so many levels and i think for me this story resonates on so many levels as well because for me these women are an example of standing up for your rights and of you know even though they were incredibly powerless people you know they were poor um, you know they came from working class backgrounds everyone was against them they still made a difference. And for me, it just is an example of, you know, no matter how powerless you may feel or you may think you are, you can rise up and join together with like-minded people as this sisterhood of women did. And you can fight to make the world a better place and you can achieve it. And that's what the Radium Girls did. And I just think they're extraordinary for that.
0: So I guess the the, the last thing I, I wanted to um, ask you is... What lessons do you think the Radium Girls have to teach us a century later?
1: Well, um, I mean, I just sort of mentioned that that I think they are a a shining example to us. Um, That's the positive, I think, that we can take away from them. Um, You know, the inspirational example they give us to fight for justice, to fight for our rights. You know, no matter what cause it is that you believe in, and um, the way these women pursued their cause, I find inspirational, and I hope if people read it, they too will gain strength uh, and inspiration for whatever fight for justice that they personally have. Um, the sort of more downbeat uh, sort of instruction, I think from their story is the fact that we still see history repeat itself. You know, we talked earlier about the Second World War, dial painters, um, but ultimately, I think this story, you know, if you were to sort of summarise it in a way, it's a story where a company tried to put profits over people, you know, they were more concerned with the bottom line than with the fact that the radium girls were dying. And unfortunately, we see this again and again, even now in our society. Um, You know, even as we're talking about lockdown, you know, the ultimate battle is profits versus health at the moment. People are talking about how to lift the lockdown, how do businesses return to work and so on. And there's a balance we're having to strike. You know, We kind of see that every day uh, at this current time in the newspaper headlines. And you know that, I think we see that resonating and we see companies sometimes acting um, in an egregiously greedy way. Uh, and I think if we can learn anything from the radium bells, it's that we've got to be vigilant Uh, And I think if you're in a position where you see that kind of injustice, you have to try and call it out as the Radium Girls did, because if no one else speaks up, then it does just happen. You know, this story is one where companies literally tried to get away with murder. And if not for the Radium Girls speaking up, um, you know, those workers on the Manhattan Project wouldn't have been protected. Um, the people consuming radium products would not have been protected. We wouldn't have had that knowledge that we gained because of their sacrifice. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing uh, to take away.
0: I, I think that's a really good point because this, this story is so, to us at least, um, you know, somewhat over the top and outlandish. It's tempting to say, well, something like that would never happen in this yeah. day and age. But I, I don't think that's true.
1: No, it's not. I mean, you know, this is not a recent historical example, but, um, you know, as I was researching, I could see echoes of the uh, tobacco industry scandal. You know, as I'm researching these girls' stories in their sort of uh, contemporary newspapers, there are adverts for cigarettes. You know, a cigarette a day keeps the doctor away. And of course, we now know the truth. But what a battle that was um, to bring the dangers of tobacco to the fore. Um, And I think, you know, we see it time and again with new products with um you know and it could be anything from uh, you know obviously cigarettes were marketed as a health thing it could be um uh something a gardening thing you know any kind of product uh needs to be tested um and we need to make sure it's safe uh and often corners are cut um, and that's not the case
0: right the um the aaron brockovich story also came to
1: mind mm. absolutely absolutely it, it, as i say that The the heartbreaking thing is that we see this story again and again through history. But I think unless we keep telling these stories, we will forget um, and we won't see those parallels. And you hope that we will one day reach a time where we don't see it anymore. But until we reach that point, it's so important to remember and to take inspiration from the people that did fight back, of whom the Radium Girls are such a compelling heartbreaking and inspiring example
0: so this is uh you know it's definitely a tragic tale and an unbelievable tale but also you know as we've said inspirational um if someone wanted to um, find out um how the story ends for the radium girls and 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 pick up a copy uh, of your book uh
1: where can they go um i have a website uh the com, uh that has links to uh bookstores and that where you can pick up a copy and it's also got some of the research that didn't end up in the book so even if people buy the book and read it and want to know more the radiumgirls.com is a good resource because it's got some other biographical information on, on the women and some wider examples of, of things that they can find out
0: and then with you is there anything that you're currently working on that you can tell us about
1: um, I am currently working on something new which is exciting and um, so I am working on a new US history book that I hope people that enjoyed The Radium Girls will also be shocked and inspired and touched by and um, it's a little bit too soon to say exactly what it is um, but it's um, again American history that I find compelling and fascinating and inspiring and I hope uh, well, it should perhaps, hopefully be published uh, spring next year, spring 2021, uh, depending on world events, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope that readers who have enjoyed The Radium Girls will also uh, be inspired by my new book when it comes out.
0: All right. Well, Kate Moore, um, thank you so much for taking the time to share this story with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am such an advocate for these women and... Even if people don't read the book, I want you to know about these girls. So please, you know, go and research them and find out about these amazing women because they deserve to be remembered.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: As always, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kate Moore about her book, Radium Girls. If the Radium Girls is something that you would like to learn more about, Uh, feel free to click on the link to Kate's book in the description of this episode in your podcast app. That will link you over to IndieBound.org and will get you in connection with a local independent bookseller in your area where you can pick up a copy of the book. Also, please feel free to connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at CMTU History and on Facebook at CMTU History as well. Tune in next time where we will be getting into a little bit of true crime and looking at the hunt to capture a legendary mob boss and fugitive, Whitey Bulger. See you then. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.